Please remain standing as you're able, and if you'll follow after me, we'll do very likely what Jesus and the disciples would have done first thing in the morning, last thing before they went to bed at night, before they came to the Scripture, they would have recited the Shema, or what he called the Great Commandment. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This summer we've been in 1 Corinthians, and basically it's a church with issues. And and each week we've moved from one issue to another. And then by the time you get to chapter 11, the issues have to... form around some things that have happened in worship when they have the Lord's Supper together, when they are using their spiritual gifts, when they're prophesying. And that's where we are uh, today. Apparently it's become, uh, the worship service has become a place not of order but of disorder. So Paul addresses this in the middle of chapter 14. We're going to pick up in uh, verse 26. What shall we say then, brothers and sisters, when you gather, uh, one brings a word, one brings a hymn, one brings an instruction, one brings a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And everything must be done for the building up of the body. And so let two or three at most speak in tongues and only one at a time and let those tongues be interpreted. If there's nobody available to interpret the tongues, then the speaker should be silent and the speaker just speak to himself and to God. And when you prophesy, let two or three prophesy and let everyone weigh what is said. And so if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker must stop speaking so that everyone can have a turn and that all will be encouraged and instructed. For the spirits of the prophets are under the control of the prophets. For our God is not a God uh, for our God, it's not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. And this is true everywhere among all the Lord's congregations. Now, let the women be silent in church. Let them be in submission. As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, let them ask their husbands when they get home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Well, context is everything. I remember uh, when I was a freshman in college, late one night I called my father and told him about this first major exam I had coming up. And, and my plans were to stay up till you know 3 or 4 and 5 in the morning for this 8 a.m. test. And he was a little concerned, and he said to me something I would never hear again out of his mouth the rest of his life, and I'd never heard before. He said, David, there's no virtue in hard work. I went like, what? This is the man who not only played uh, college football, but also put himself through college in two and a half years and put himself through medical school, even though he had a couple of children who was always talking to me about practicing and, uh, and, and working to get better and to do my best. 
But what was interesting is I knew exactly what he was saying because I understood the context and he was trying to, to say to me, it doesn't really matter how hard you study, it's how well you end up doing on the test. And if you stay up all night studying, you don't get credit for that if you're too tired to take the test the next morning. The context was the key. I think about a story from my father's life that, that he told early on and then he quit telling as, as we all knew it and, and got older. But apparently when he was playing high school football on a frozen field in Dallas, Texas, he got a concussion early in the second half. And he played the rest of the game and his teammates had to point him and tell him which way he was supposed to go uh, when they had the ball or when the other team had the ball. But when he would tell the story, it was interesting what he meant to do with it. Because if I came in and said, you know, that was really a long match that I had last night. I don't really uh, feel like going and, and, uh, and working out and practicing today. Then he would tell me that story about how he played when he was unconscious. But there was another time that I was very sick. I had a fever of 105 or 106, and so they brought me home from school, and uh, and Dad was going through the medical books trying to figure out what was uh, going on, looking for a neurologist uh, for me to talk with or to visit me. And, and I made some comment about wanting to just go ahead. I'm sure it's get better and go back to school. And then he told me the story again. And so in, in the first case, the story meant toughen up. In the second case, the story meant, don't do stupid things like I did in high school when I tried to play unconscious. And the context determined how the story was going to be used. And I think we all know that when it comes to Scripture, for the Word of God, context is king or queen. And and it makes a difference. And so, for example, even though Jesus said to the rich young ruler, go and sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me, The majority of us haven't done that yet because we know that was to a specific person with a specific condition that Jesus diagnosed in a situation. It was God's word and Jesus spoke to him and he responded a different way. Let me try this one. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, most of us who have two eyes obviously have not followed uh, what he said. And you can't tell me you haven't seen things at one point in your life that's caused you some issues. Something perhaps you envied or someone perhaps you despised. And yet you knew that Jesus is making a point on the Sermon on the Mount and in speaking of the Sermon on the Mount and talking about how you have to be very careful about sin, he's using hyperbole. And, and you get that context. Or even in this morning's text, uh, if, if you take it out of context, you could read the, sign, the, uh, the sentence where Paul says, let the speaker be silent. Well, I haven't done that one very well. But of course, the context is if a person has the gift of tongues and there's no one there to interpret it. So we understand that context is important. So when we come to verse 34 and 35, uh, that women should be uh, silent in church, it's important that we look at the context. This is God's word. We want to take it with the utmost seriousness. We want to know what God, uh, through the Holy Spirit and Paul, has for us in this situation. And I have to tell you that for the better part of 2,000 years in Christian history, the verse has been interpreted in a way as to basically disenfranchise more than half of the people in the church and to prevent them from using the gifts that God has given them. Even our own United Methodist Church. Women have only been ordained as pastors in the last 60 years. Now think about it for a moment. 
the biggest influence on our founder, John Wesley's life, was his mother, Susanna. We're not here if not for her. And then in the 19th century, one of the great religious revivals in the United States was led by a Methodist woman named Phoebe Palmer. Another Methodist woman in the 20th century, Georgia Harkness, did great things for people all through the church. But in spite of that, for years, taking this particular verse and an interpretation, which I believe is out of context, basically women were not allowed to bring all of the gifts that God had given them to the table. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, Pastor Dinah and I went to uh, Africa with a group largely from another denomination. And this other denomination does not have women pastors because of this and a couple other verses that they have also um, plucked out. And so it was really weird because they didn't know what to do because uh, they'd look at me and they'd say, Pastor, pray. And I'd look at Dinah like, do it. And she would, or like, Pastor, would you like to bring a devotion this evening? And, and they would be like, Dinah, you're on. And it was, it was really hard because they didn't know. It's like, is she your sister? Is she your niece? I mean, what's she doing here on this trip? Because they had no category for her. And so uh, for the rest of that trip, I would call her not my imaginary friend, but my imaginary pastor. But most of you know Pastor Dinah, who most Sundays is over in the uh, gym with the New Heights. And you know Pastor Donna. And you understand their giftedness. And you understand what the Holy Spirit brings through them to our body. So I think it's time we take a really serious look at the Word of God in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 30, um, 35. Now, to start, uh, we should tell you that some scholars have questions about whether Paul ever wrote this at all. Um, there are a few places in the Bible... The most famous one is Mark, the 16th chapter, beginning in verse 9, where scholars really wonder if that was in the earliest text of the Bible. Like, did Jesus really say that? Did Mark really get that right? Uh, you may remember verse 9 through 20 uh, invites us to go and, and, and get poisonous snakes and drink poison. And some people do do that, but most of us don't. Um, and uh, there's a real question as to whether that really was part originally of the Gospel of Mark. And in the same way, some scholars, and you may even have it in your Bible, have brackets around verse 34 and 35, because there are copies of some of the earliest letters of Paul that we have, 1 Corinthians, where those two verses are not in it, or they're in it but moved to the end of the chapter. And so it makes you wonder, like, what's up with this? What's going on? So some even question whether Paul wrote this. Some don't question whether Paul wrote it, but they wonder whether Paul really said it. Because um, in 1 Corinthians, um, if you've been with us this summer, but if not, I'll catch you up real fast. 1 Corinthians is about Paul's response to a church from about problems that have been brought to him from a personal messenger from the house of Chloe and then problems that have been brought to him by letter. So on occasionally in his letter back, he'll quote what he's heard, either from their letter or from Chloe. A classic example is, it's better for a man not to touch a woman, which means don't get married. Well, it's pretty clear Paul didn't say that, but there are no quotes in the Greek. But it's pretty clear to scholars, Paul didn't say that, he's quoting them. There's another place where Paul says, the belly is for food and food for the belly. In other words, eat up, do whatever the heck you want. Well, it's pretty clear Paul didn't say that, but somebody in Corinth was saying that, but we don't have the quotes in the Greek. And there's another one that we ran across a few weeks ago where, uh, where uh, Paul's opponents who think they're so smart and want permission to eat uh, meat offered idols say, well, look, everybody's got knowledge. In other words, everybody knows this stuff. 
Well, that's their quote. Paul's not saying it. So some say Paul is quoting other people in the church in Corinth who are saying this about the women in 34 and 35. So first thing I just need to put in front of you is there's some question as to whether Paul said it. Now, my assumption is Paul did, which brings us back to what I said, which is the context. What is Paul uh, talking about? How uh, does the Holy Spirit intend for us to read the Word of God in this situation? So first of all, let me say just a word about Paul's larger context. When you read Paul, you are reading someone who said, There is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, to the Galatians. When you read Paul, you're reading a man who appointed two women to be the leaders of the church at Philippi. Their names are Euodia and Syntyche, and he mentions them in the letter. When you read Paul, you read in the Romans about three other leaders that he lists, uh, Junia and uh, Prisca and Phoebe. And you read about Priscilla, Prisca, in the book of Acts, who Paul uses as leaders. So actually, Paul's got some women who are doing some leading and some teaching in, um, in the church. So that, but then when you come now to Corinth, you need to back up three chapters. And I know we didn't look at this particular verse in chapter 11. Paul says, now when you women prophesy in Corinth at the church, wear your head coverings. So Paul is already allowed in this letter that women should be prophesying. So what's going on here? Where he's saying, now women, take it home. Ask your husbands. If there's any clue that even perhaps those of us who want to be most obtuse about this, if there's any clue for us that Paul has a very specific situation in mind, it would be this verse. Go home and ask your husbands. I don't think that's kind of a biblical precept all the way through. But Paul pulls it out here. And so it's important also to know in this context that the word that's interpreted women, very fair and good interpretation, can also be used for wives. So one of the things Paul's talking about is something's going on with the husbands and wives in this Corinthian church, which would not be like this. It would be a small house that could hold 18, 35, 50 at most for worship. There's something going on there, and it's, it's out of order. Because the strictest context is this. Paul's talking about things that are out of order, starting in chapter 11 with the way they celebrate, prophesy and celebrate the Lord's Supper, the way they highlight some spiritual gifts over others in and, and chapter 12. And now in 14, after the love, chapter on love, he's talking about what happens when it's time to prophesy or it's time uh, to speak in tongues. And it's obvious that he's got this situation in mind and his concern, he says, is order. And I don't know if you've been in a place where church was out of order, but this is a good concern. Have you ever been to a funeral that had an open mic? Okay, if you see the mic stand set up, run the other way really fast. Because one thing about open mic funerals, which is where people just come and they say anything they want about the deceased, is it can get out of control real fast. I've only done it a couple times because I'm a slow learner. We don't do that anymore. One time, microphone is set up here. They're talking about the deceased. Um, and uh, the, the, like the very first person up talks about what a terrible boss this person was. And I'm like, I don't think that's the purpose of this. But it got worse. One of his ex-wives came up to speak. And it wasn't, I miss him. And he really was wonderful when I look back. It wasn't that at all. And so I'm trying to figure out, how do I turn that sucker off? You know, there's already six people in line. Well, there's, there's, kind of, there's an order issue. And, you know, order, just worship, by and large, works better 
uh, with order. Uh, the flow of the Spirit it would be best within some channels or banks. Um, this weekend, for a friend's uh, a- um, anniversary, I spent some time in Wimberley, Texas. And a wonderful town, rebuilding, but you can see the power of what happens when a mighty force gets outside its channel, gets outside its boundary in the same way. Things apparently are getting out of control in worship, and somebody's trying to uh, speak in tongues, and somebody else is speaking at the same time, and then someone is making a prophecy, and others um, are interrupting the, the prophet, apparently asking questions. So it's just out of control, and Paul's trying to get order back into the situation. Now, I think it would be fair in the 21st century to say maybe in our church churches today, the issue isn't so much uh, that we uh, need channels for the Holy Spirit. Probably the, the issue is more like we've got a dam built up that doesn't let the Holy Spirit loose enough. But, but let's try to go back to the first century um, context. So, so things are out of control, so the situation is Paul's trying to get order. So if you want to be strictly literal about this situation, then what you have to do is next time uh, someone stands up and gives a prophecy while I'm speaking or starts speaking in tongues, you make sure that the woman is not yelling at her husband across the aisle, which we'll get to at her husband while I'm talking. That would be the strictest and most literal interpretation. And the likelihood of that happening around here, not as strong. And so, but to take a principle for all women everywhere from this situation, I think would be incorrect. So I think you're right to ask, well, what is going on? Why are people standing up and getting out of order in the worship service? Here's three theories. First one is this. The closest prophetess to Corinth is in a very famous place you may have heard of called the Oracle at Delphi. Have you heard of the Oracle of Delphi? One of the most famous oracles in the ancient world. By Paul's day, it's dwindling in its influence. But here's what happens to the Oracle of Delphi, according to scholars, is it really becomes a question and answer deal. So you come to the prophetess and you bring her a question. And usually the questions were three categories. One were religious duties and sacrifices. Like, what do I do to get these pagan gods to like me? Do you have a suggestion? You know, what, what kind of sacrifice or offering do I need to do? And the prophetess then... We'll give you an answer. Second category were civic or public matter. matter. Sometimes leaders would come and ask the prophets, prophetess about something in their country or their town, should they do it or not. One of the most famous ones, of course, when a king in ancient Greece comes to the, the prophetess and asks whether he should engage this other kingdom in battle. And the prophetess's famous response, you may recall, is uh, a mighty kingdom will fall in battle. And so he thinks, all right, we're in. And of course, as you know the story, it's his kingdom that falls because of this battle. But then the third category, and according to historians, the largest use of the Oracle Delphi was simply this. Questions about the home, domestic questions, by and large, brought by women. Will I ever have a child? Is this child going to be male or female? Should I get married? Should we move to another community? All sorts of domestic questions matters and you brought apparently the prophetess a straight question and by and large got a straight answer so apparently what happens is when it's time for prophecy in the house church and someone has a word from the lord and they stand up and they're talking about something else a woman a wife is like well, i'd like to know first am i going to have a child well i'd like to know first i mean should we move to this other town and paul's just saying save it that's not how prophecy works in, in the church. God brings a word and we listen for it. We don't necessarily interrupt the word to go ahead and ask our questions at that period and that time. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is this. 
we're pretty sure that in these house churches, men sat on one side and women on the other. They were segregated by, by a sex. And so um, generally in the ancient world, Greco-Roman world as well as the Jewish world, uh, the wife received religious training, even as a pagan, but less than the husband. Anybody remember the great Barbara Streisand movie where she pretends to be a boy, dental, so she can get this education in the Talmud? That sort of thing. Women didn't always have the opportunities men had. So when a subject came up, a, a, a wife might wonder, now where is that in the Bible? Or I haven't heard that principle. And so she'll want to say to her husband, I didn't get that. Where is that? And Paul's just saying, if you want to inquire about something, ask when you get home. And I think that may be the most likely explanation. But here's a third because it's my favorite, and it's this. If you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, When it's time to prophesy and a prophet stands up, weigh carefully what is said. So apparently the husband must have been given a word from the Lord or thought he had a word from the Lord, stands up to prophesy, and his wife's on the other side of the aisle going, No, that's not, don't say that. And, and she's using her natural spousely concern to kind of tone it down or keep him from making a big mistake. And Paul's just saying, look, take it up when you get home. Years ago, I had a, a tricky funeral. And I was wondering about one particular story the family had told me and whether or not I ought to use it in the message. I just, just didn't know if it really would be appropriate given uh, some things that had happened. So I asked my wife. For her advice, and she said, basically, you know, the fact that you ask me about this probably shows that already maybe you shouldn't do that, and, and we decided I wouldn't do it. Now, that's one thing, and that helped me, and that made sense. Another thing would have been if I'd have shown up, she's sitting in the funeral, and I start to use that story, she stands up and goes, don't say it! Don't do it! Well, the order of the whole funeral goes down. So what Paul is saying here is that the order is the key and so it's just it's a word of the lord and we take very seriously god's word but the bigger word is about order and using of gifts than it is about anything that has to do with a married woman or or even women who are single because paul's big concern is that there be order so that the body of christ can be built up and so that everyone has an opportunity to use their gifts. And he's already told them to use their gifts. He said, look, I want you to prophesy. Just cover your heads, which is a whole other story. But real quickly, in Corinth, the only women who walked around with their heads uncovered, it was like hanging a red light in your window for the adults. I mean, it kind of signaled you were available for a certain profession. And Paul says, that doesn't look real good when you walk into church looking like that. And so when you come into church and get ready to prophesy, you cover your head. Oh, I see you've already done the context work on that one. Um, so anyway, it's about, it's about order. But the goal is so that all of us can bring and use our gifts. Because as Dan reminded the children about the rainbow, we need all the colors. So we need all the male gifts. And we need all the female gifts. And we need all the black gifts. And all the white gifts. And all the brown gifts. We need all the colors. All the ages. We need all of that offered. Rosabeth Moss Cantor um, is a professor, was a professor at Harvard Business School, and she once said this. She said, the problems of the world are too many, 
and there are not enough geniuses to leave the solutions in the hands of just a few. I mean, this stuff requires all of us bringing our gifts together, and that's what Paul wants. Paul just wants to create an environment where that can happen. Rabbi Lawrence Kushner once said, he thinks every one of us carries within us a missing piece to somebody else's puzzle. But if you don't show up to offer it, they don't get that piece. Or if you show up but nobody lets you offer it, they don't get that piece. And so my bigger concern used to be Sunday morning is, well, look at the people not here to hear the sermon. Where are they? Well, I've grown a little bit since then. And it's like, look at the people who might have a missing piece from somebody else and they're not here to give it. Maybe they're the ones that we need to see in the hall and go, oh, yes. Tell me about what happened with your grandchild. Or tell me what's going on with your children. Or maybe you have the answer for them about something they've been struggling with at work, but they're not here. And that gift doesn't get offered. It takes all the gifts together in order for the Holy Spirit to do the wonderful stuff the Holy Spirit wants to do in our body. I'm reminded of the late Fred Craddock talking about being at his first church. He said what they did is they took in their new member on uh, Easter sunrise service at a lake, and they baptized her in the lake. She had two children. And then as she came out of the lake, they wrapped her in a towel and cooked her breakfast and cooked breakfast for everyone. And they sat in a circle as she was drying off and eating, and they introduced themselves in that small church one by one. And a person might say, I'm so-and-so, and I own the local auto repair store. If your car ever breaks breaks down, you call me and I will fix it whether you can afford it or not. Somebody else would say, I'm so-and-so and I'm a retired teacher. And if either of your two children struggle in school, especially in math, call me. I'll come over and help them. Another one said, well, I don't know my particular talent, but she said, I've got time and I can drive. If I ever need to go pick up medicine or groceries or something for you because your child is sick and bring it to you and you're at home, call me. And I'll do that one by one. They offered themselves to her. And when it was over, the head of the church said to the new preacher, he said, well, preacher, it just people don't get any closer than this. And the pastor nodded his head and he thought to himself about what he'd just seen. He said, you know, there's a word for this. He tried to think of it. There's a word for this kind of sharing where everybody brings it together like this. There's a word for this, he thought. What is that word? And he realized... The word for that, for that sort of sharing, is church. The word for that is church.